Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Let's just start with, uh, with prayer this morning. Father, you know all things. You see all things. Nothing escapes you. Nothing bypasses your wisdom or your knowledge. You know our hearts better than we know them. Our our emotions, our fears, our confusions, our frustrations, our anxieties, our stresses. You're intimately acquainted with them. Not just because you are God and you know all things, but because you in Christ became man and felt all things. Father, what a, what a statement that you hear our cries. And I, and I think we would fool ourselves into believing that any response to you, any response to the gospel, to your truth, to your person, to who you are, is adequate. Um, and yet you call us to cry out to you. You call us to humble, to be broken, to be contrite in spirit, to be lowly, that those are the ones that you lift up. And so this morning, I I just pray that your spirit would settle and rest among us thick, and that you would call us, each and every one of us, to cry out to you. Father, that's my prayer because I believe that's your heart. I pray that you would do that this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, guys, um, my name is Will. Brad is in India. Um, And here's what I know. He ate well and got a head massage for a dollar. So (laughs) things are good in India, apparently. I... uh, Pray for him, pray for the ministry that he's doing and, and will be doing there. And if you would, go ahead and grab a Bible. Uh, if, if, if you don't have one, you can find one in the chair in front of you on the little rack down by your feet. And depending on which one you pick up, our text will be on page 677 or 864. But if everybody would go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 36, that's where we're going to be this morning. And let, let me just say a, a little conviction that I have. Uh, for those of you who know me, I'm not the senior pastor, Brad's the senior pastor, and I get all the liberties and freedoms of kind of being the youth, children's, young adult guy, and, and that kind of, I get all those freedoms, and I love that. Um, but this morning, I, instead of starting with maybe some anecdotes or, or anything like that, I, I really would like for us to start heavy, if that's okay, if y'all would afford me that grace. And the reason is, I think we would be neglecting our soul's good by needing the typical walk into Sunday morning warm-up period. You know what I'm talking about. We walk in, kind of get settled in, figure out our Bibles. Did I remember a cup of water? Man, I'm really thirsty right now. I've got to go to the bathroom a little. I think I can make, and all of those things. And, and if we could just take a breath, I'd like to settle us in a little bit of depth before we read through this text about a woman who finds herself bawling at the feet of Jesus in recognition of her own sin and brokenness. And so here's what I'd like us to do. You don't have to close your eyes or anything like that, but, but I do want you to do this. I want you to think of your sin. And, and I don't want you to think about it in the general sense, like, I'm a sinner, I get it. We've already read a bunch of verses, I get it, Will, I'm a sinner. I mean in the specific sense. I mean in, in the sense where you remember that sin, or one of those sins. Maybe it was 20 years ago, maybe it was 40 years ago, but even if, if you have come to the cross and received healing, there is still some weight, there is still some gravity of the, the depth of that particular sin. Not in general, but that particular. For some of us, this is very easy. For some of us, we may have to think back a little further. For some of us, it was this weekend or uh, last night, a, a minute ago. It could have been a moment ago. But I, I'm just going to be silent for a second before I begin reading our text in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And, and 
I, I want you to do that. I want you to think of that. I'm not going to leave us there. It's not good for us to just think of sin, sin, sin. But it, it is wise for us before we read this text to get to that point. So go ahead and, and do that. Think about it. How you felt. Where you were. What the circumstances were. When that sin was committed. Was, was found out. Felt real to you. And then I'll read. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he, being Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. This, by the way, is Simon, not the disciple, Simon, the name of a Pharisee. So Jesus responds and he says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, if you notice, when I came up here, we had kind of the main screen. The title for this sermon is, Who is This? And that's not, I, I didn't come up with anything creative. In fact, the entire chapter of Luke, the entire chapter 7 of Luke is people asking this question. They see Jesus do something. They see him heal a, a centurion servant of the occupying nation, their enemy. And they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who is this? And then they see someone raised from the dead and they say, wait a second. Okay, we've heard of teachers, we've heard of prophets, but who is this who's bringing people back from the dead? And then we find ourselves this morning with the same question being asked, who is this? Who is Jesus? That is very much the context and the question for us this morning. I want to pray one more time quickly, and then we'll hop into verse 36. Father, wherever it is that our hearts are, wherever our minds may wander, whatever it is that our desires are, and and the things that can creep in on us in a setting where we get still and we get quiet, which maybe we rarely do, and thoughts begin to flood in, may your spirit have absolute reign in our hearts and minds and souls. May the greatest voice that we hear not be anything of ourselves, but everything completely and wholly of you. May it be your word speaking to your people, calling sinners to repentance, calling saints into love-filled godly living so that we, as we gather together collectively, experience the fullness of your spirit poured out through your word this morning. And it's in Christ's name 
we pray. All right, everybody check out verse 36. I want to work through this a little bit. So here's what we have. One of the Pharisees, now keep in mind, this could be confusing if you see Simon and you're thinking about Jesus' disciple Simon. It was a common name, very common name. And so here we have a Pharisee. Now, many of you know the Pharisee was the religious ruling class, very pious, religious, looked up to by the general population as holy people who were living good, clean lives the right way. And this is the setting for what Jesus is about to do. So one of the Pharisees asked him, verse 36, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, this would not have been uncommon, right? The Pharisee had the right house. It was on the right street. It was clean the right way, and everything was just as it should be for any traveling teacher, especially one that was getting as much renown and popularity as this Jesus guy who was doing some pretty amazing things. So it would not have been uncommon for a Pharisee to say, hey, you've been teaching in the synagogue come over to my house and have a meal. But I do want you to understand this. If you grew up in the church and you're thinking of that picture of a woman sitting down, like Jesus is in a chair and there's this woman there and she's like, you know, she's got a tear rolling down her cheek. You need to kind of scrub that picture. That's not exactly what we have here. So, so this is what we have. They're reclining at table, which means there is this meal. So imagine a table, but not like your dining room table. It, it was situated much lower. And instead of sitting at it, they would have reclined at it. So put yourself in your lazy boy and then rotate around. And that's what it looked like. They would put their feet away from their f- the food because our feet are gross. Their feet were really gross. Okay. I've got kids. You don't let the feet. You know, like when you prepare your meal and then your three-year-old runs across the counter. Does anybody else have that experience or is that just my life? Y'all are like, no, that's just you. Well, we don't allow that. Well, we don't either, but they still manage to do it because they're little sinners, okay? <laughs> and so it's like you get, you get it clean, and I don't even care. My wife likes things clean, I, whatever. But there is something gross about a little footprint next to my plate wondering what that little foot was in moments ago. There's something gross about that. And so these guys would sit, notice this is men, they would sit with their feet away from the table, leaning on one arm, the hand that was considered unclean, and they would eat food with the, with the hand that was clean. So imagine, the ESV notes uh, explains this very well, imagine uh, like a bike tire with spokes coming out of a central hub. The, the table is a central hub, and everybody is facing each other, having conversation, eating a meal with their feet far away. And then this happens, verse 37. And behold, the Bible even treats it as like, what is going on here? A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This woman isn't even given a name. In fact, the only name you could really give her from our text is sinner because she's called it twice. Now, this could happen for one of two reasons. It could be cultural. She could be a camel herder. I don't think that's what's happening here. She could have been a tax collector. She could have been a tanner. All of those things would have been professions that people would have said, yes, she is a sinner. But the way the text deals with it makes it seem much more like this was a moral failing. She did something. Very much like in high school when you read the scarlet letter. Because whatever she did was moral. This act of disgrace, think back to your own. This act of disgrace seems to be known by everyone. And she's known simply as a sinner. That this is sin's desire for me and for you to rename us that and to leave that our name. In Genesis 4, did, did I give you Genesis 4, Josiah? You back there? In Genesis 4, I don't think I brought it up. Will you just throw it up on the screen? We read this. Now, this goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Cain and Abel. Cain gave a wah-wah offering. Abel gave a alright offering. And so God's like, Cain, get your act together. And Cain is jealous of his brother. And here's what God says. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule 
over it. Sin in our lives is not content with having a little spot. It's not content even with owning an arm or a leg or an eye. The way that sin works is I've got to rule that thing. And it is sin's greatest desire to absolutely rule a person. And this is the way that the Bible treats sin. And I'll prove it to you when we go all the way to 1 Corinthians 6, if you would throw that up. Here's how Paul deals with it. He says, everything is, yeah, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So Paul, speaking of sin and his freedom in sin, looks at it and he says, look, I've got freedom for this and I've got freedom for this and I've got freedom for this and I've got freedom for this. There are all of these laws that Jesus has set me free from, but here's the thing, I'm not going to be mastered by any of it. I can't because that sin's desire to absolutely master me, to own me, to own my whole being, to rename me, and that's exactly what's happened to this woman. Her name is gone. She's simply known as a sinner. And she's at the feet of Jesus crying. And not just that little single tear like, that is adorable. We should paint a picture of that. I'm going to put it up in my hallway. No, like she is, as my wife would say, ugly crying. Like there's a difference in crying and ugly crying. You're okay with people seeing you cry, right? It's just like, oh, they're really being touched and stirred. That's, wow. And then there's ugly crying where there's like snot, right? And you like don't want people to see it. And, and, and it seems like this is the context of her crying. She is so broken over her sin and who Jesus is that she is bawling to the point that Jesus' feet are being saturated by her tears. She looks around as though there's, there's, there's nothing. I can't clean them with my clothes. They're filthy. The only thing that she has is her hair. She takes her hair down, which in that culture, if she was married, would have been grounds for divorce. And she pushes away propriety because Jesus' feet are covered. And she lets her hair down and she begins to clean them. And then she takes this alabaster jar, which would have been worth like almost a year's, uh, a year's salary. And that's probably for like a normal person, not a woman, and certainly not a woman who is known by all to have this huge moral failing. This must have been her most prized possession without a doubt. It's even odd that she would, wa- it'd be like me walking around with tens of thousands of dollars hanging out of my, like people would look at that and be like, are you crazy? What do you do? We, we were talking about this. Um, Brad was about to go to India And so Springer and I had to go to the bank to sign off on some cash that he needed to take with him. And he was telling us that when he was like, I don't know where Springer is. Ah, Was he 20? Springer, are you in here? Ah, He's ministering. (laughs) When Brad was like 20 or 24 years old, he went to whatever country. I can't remember the story, but you'll get the point. He went to this country with $40,000 in cash. And when he was 20, that's worth like $200,000 today, right? So... Sorry, old people. It would have been absolutely insane to do that. And this woman is walking around with this alabaster jar and she breaks it open. We've actually found these things, thousands of these things. Not we, I don't go and do archaeology. That'd be awesome, send me on that mission trip. But, but people have found thousands of these like alabaster jars broken. And here's the thing. It wasn't like your, you know, your little, I don't know what, Calvin Klein, I don't know what you wear. Nautica, Nautica was my thing back in the day, where you like spray it a couple of times and you put it in your drawer and somehow that jar lasts like forever, unless you're one of those guys where it's gone in a week and that was a problem for you and everybody knew it, right? (laughs) That is not how it worked. Like if you opened this thing, it didn't screw back on. You broke it. And when it was broken, it was broken. And this woman, ugly crying, covering his feet with her tears, uh, to the point where she has to take her hair down in shame to wipe them up, breaks her most valuable possession, very much displaying her heart, holding absolutely nothing back as she cries over Jesus. And this tosses Simon. It throws him kicked by a mule across the yard, throws him. Because his thought is, look, I've got the right house, and it's clean. And I've got this new teacher that everybody's interested in. Everybody knows me. Everybody knows my reputation. There are no footprints on my countertop. And you are walking into my house, 
Everybody knows your sin. Don't come in here. And then Jesus allows it. And not only does he allow it, but, but he doesn't just say something so that she'll move on. He allows her to lavish in it. And next thing you know, her hair is down. And next thing you know, there's this smell that's filling the room, that's pointing everyone. Even though the center of focus would have been all the men, all of the focus is now shifting to this, this woman at Jesus' feet. There's no escaping it. The scent is moving out of the house into the street. And people are wondering what's going on inside. And Simon is looking at Jesus and he says, who is this? You told me you were a prophet. You seemed like a good teacher. You had a pretty amazing reputation, but there's a problem. You can't be. You can't be all of those things. And this is exactly what happens. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, now this is important, He's not saying this out loud. He's just sitting there, probably giving Jesus like a, oh my gosh, embarrassed look. He says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. For she is a sinner. He can't be a prophet. She was a sinful woman and he didn't know her. If he did know, he certainly wouldn't have allowed it. How could he possibly be a prophet? And he looks at Jesus. It it, it would be as though you got... It would be as though you got... hmm. Anybody own a hospital? If you owned a hospital and it was your pride and joy, okay... And then you told your physicians to get the operating rooms sterile and spotless. And everything was perfect and the doors open and the first cancer patient comes in for for surgery. And they're prepping the operating table and the physician's there ready to work. And you bust through the door and you say, whoa, 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 whoa. I just got this place cleaned up. Don't you see how sterile this room is? It's perfect. Don't open that person up here. Don't let their filth out here. That cancer's a poison. And I just got this place cleaned up. You see, Simon wanted to invite Jesus in to his perfect little sterile room. But Jesus isn't just a teacher, and he's not just a prophet. He's the son of God, and he is, by God's own word, a great physician. And where he goes, he does work. And he takes away filth, and he restores it with clean things. But to do so, rags have to get dirty. Scalpels have to get bloody. Gloves have to get messy. And Simon looks at him, and he says, you can't do that here. And can I just tell you, that is many times the way we respond when God begins doing something in our heart on a Sunday morning where we're surrounded by people. Jesus, can't you just do this clean? Can't we just pray about this? Can't, can't I go home? You know what? I promise. I'll even shut the door. I'll open up my Bible and I'll pray. And we treat it like this room needs to be this sterile space where filth can't exist. And we put on nice clothes. I dressed down a little bit today. It wasn't intentional. We put on nice clothes. We put on our makeup. If you're a girl, we do our hair. We do whatever it is. And we walk in and we try to put on this facade just like Simon of how everything is good enough and clean enough and all right enough. And here's the problem. Jesus doesn't work in that environment. If your response to the gospel, if your response to the great physician is sterile, has to be clean, I can't worship with my hands up. That's too embarrassing. I can't cry out loud where people would hear me. They would look. This woman didn't care. I can't kneel down in my seat. I can't lean to the person next to me and say, pray for me. I need prayer for you. Or come down to the altar and ask a pastor to pray for me. I'd become the center of attention. And I'm telling you, our culture is horrible at truly responding to God. Because we are far more concerned with being clean and sterile. And it's a pity for us. We miss out on so much of the goodness of God because we look at this woman and we'd rather be Simon. Or if we want to be this woman, it has to be behind closed doors. It has to be where no one's going to see it. Propriety has to have its place. But Jesus always gets his hand dirty. 
I'm glad that Jesus was fully God and fully man and didn't maintain my personality because there's so many times in stories like this where I would just want to like mock Simon in front of people, but Jesus loves even like the person who's screwing things up at the time. Because Simon is thinking this, and Jesus discerns his thoughts. Now, that's important because Simon was like, I thought this guy was a prophet. And Jesus is like, I'm reading your mind. That's pretty prophety. <laughs> right? Like, did you pick up on this? He's like, oh, I thought you were a prophet. And Jesus, it, it, Jesus is just kind of chilling at table, reclining like, hey, uh, let me tell you your thoughts. And then I'll respond to them. I'll invite you into a story. Let me tell you a story. Verse 41. Hey, Simon, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? See, this is how I do the story. Like, hey, Simon, good thought. Don't tell me. I know. So anyway, let me tell you this story. It's about a guy who, uh, he has a bunch of money. Nah, it's about this guy who owns everything, okay? He like created it all. And then there are a couple of people who are in debt to him. And he's sort of like, hey, I'm going to forgive you with a huge debt. I'm going to forgive you with a small debt. Who do you think is going to love that guy more? And Simon's response, I do love this. The fact that I suppose is in here. Simon in verse 43, the one I suppose, person who just read my thoughts. I'm beginning to lose some confidence here in my position towards you. The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And then Jesus, he isn't like, booyah, right? Like, Jesus is like, you've judged rightly. It's like he's inviting him in to his own potential healing, right? Instead of just saying, you're a screw up. He, he like gently leads Simon to this truth. Now, what's interesting here is that this parable is obviously a parallel of what's happening right before them, right? We see this, right? There's a woman with an apparently great debt and Simon with apparently less or a little debt. And what's really interesting is what happens to both people in the story Jesus tells. It's okay, you can do response here. What happens to both of them? They both get I'm feeling very confident, right? They both get forgiven. Now, is this a foreshadowing of what's about to happen to Simon? Is this an example? Is this a hope for Simon? Well, it's interesting that in the story, both get forgiven. And yet, in this story, Jesus responds to people as having two very different debts. What about Simon? What about all of the people like Simon who have just a little bit of sin, who have less debt than the majority of the horrible sinners out there, am I right? That's how it's being played out. The problem is there is no such thing as a little forgiveness. It doesn't exist. Not in God's world. In ours it does. Your kid tells a lie, right? Or uh, <clears throat> takes a cookie from the cookie jar. Let's use the most used illustration of all time. And you're like, well, you do one of two things. Either you discipline them or you show them grace. Both have their place. But let's say you're showing grace since that's what our text actually shows right here. And you're like, son, you know you weren't supposed to do this. You took the cookie. You deserve <clears throat> discipline, whatever. However, I'm going to show you grace. And you forgive them and you move on with your day. That's easy for us. Why? Because we stole the cookie too back in the day. That's why it's easier for you to forgive your kid. Because you're like, I was sort of a punk too. And it's the same thing with everybody else in your life. Unless you're absolutely blind and you honestly think that you're perfect. We'll get to you in a minute. But, <laughs> but for most of us, it's not an issue. And we forgive and we kind of move on. And we sort of can see sin is this and sin is this and sin is this. But that's not the way God sees it. And I'll prove it to you. Let's go all the way back to Genesis 3, the fall. What was the sin? Okay, disobedience. What was the actual action? Let's just go with apple, right? Granny Smith. No, it's red. It's red in all the pictures. Red delicious. All right? Now, I, I want to prove this to you. 
that there is no small sin. One bite. Two, if you, if you want to be literal, I suppose. Share. That's a good thing. At least it was sandwiched with something good. Share. And from that, shame, nakedness, separation from God, distress between men and women that we feel in our culture today and we feel in our marriages, hardship, frustration, labor, perspiration, death, loss, because of how small does your sin feel when that's all that it takes? Your little thing, whatever you consider your little sin, that little thing was big enough to cause blood to fall from the forehead of Jesus. It was big enough to put holes in each of his hands and in his feet. That's how small your small sin is. And you could make the argument, yeah, but come on, Will. God was like, don't do it, right? Like there's this one tree and apparently it's got this big glow around it. So it's very obvious they should not be teetering towards this tree with this red apple on it. Will, that's, if God said it, if he was like, hey, don't do it, it'd be different. You mean like don't covet other people's things? You're telling me that in the past day or two, you haven't seen anyone with anything that you would desire? You haven't thought of a person's life that you would rather trade? You haven't seen a post that you wished was your own? Men, let's get real for a minute here. In that text in Exodus, he says, do not covet another man's wife. And you want to tell me that you can walk these halls and not look around and play the compare game and think, and think things wouldn't be better if? And that's just one that God gave us. But here's the reality. All of us look back to that Bible story and you've done it and I've done it. And we say, well, if I was in the garden, if I was Adam, there's no way I eat that apple. Right? Am I the only one, or have you, actually, have you not thought this? I'm, the, I'm not the only one. If I was in the garden, there's, it was so obvious. They literally had one sin. That was it. I could so have done that. And the moment we think that, we become Simon. You see that? The moment we think that you're Simon, and I'm Simon, and we're all Simon. So how is it that this woman found forgiveness? How is it that she found peace? What is it that we lack for, for, for the life that she stood up from and left? What is it we lack? Here's the deal. She treated sin like a big deal and we justify it away. That's the only difference. There's nothing magical. She treated sin like it was a big deal and we justify it away and treat it like it's small. So what does Jesus do? Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see her? Have you looked at her? Have you even considered her? Or are you just so ashamed that she's even here? Do you see her? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. And you didn't have to. It wasn't a rule. It wasn't a guaranteed expectation. But it would have been nice. It would have shown that you cared. That you appreciated who I was. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. And it wasn't like there was a law. But it would have been appropriate. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. And you didn't have to. You didn't have to feel obligated, but it would have shown that you were delighted that I was here, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Simon, Jesus says, you felt as though I was the privileged one to be here. Simon, you felt as though I, Jesus, was the lucky one to be at your house. And perhaps Simon's greatest sin and ours is that he treats Jesus as common. I, perfect. Did not plan this. 
This is the most common thing in my life, and that is not an illustration. These cross-point pins chase me wherever I go. I can't get away from them. I'll walk in restaurants and sit down, and there's one on the table. I don't know who's doing these things. It's like the best advertising strategy ever, except like these parts are so cheap. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? The little ones? Oh my gosh, it drives me crazy. This is what I think. I throw these things away more than I throw paper away because the moment one of them doesn't write, oh, got a good one. The moment this thing doesn't write, I'm like, not even worth it. Other pens, like I'm like, no, I'm going to get you to work. I'm gonna, but this thing is so common, I'm like, yeah, yeah. And Simon treats Jesus as though he's common, as though he's everywhere and easily accessible, as though there was a church on every corner, right? He treats Jesus like he's assumed, as though we could go to him whenever we need. So why deal with my sin now? He'll be there tomorrow or a year from now. Ten years from now, when I finish enjoying this, things that are common are considered ordinary. Jesus, you're a teacher. We've got lots of teachers. We've even had some prophets in the past. Ordinary. And when you treat something as though it's easily accessible and assumed and ordinary, how can you value it? Do you see the value pendulum swing from this woman and Simon. Is Jesus common to you? Verse 47. Therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. I didn't do any points this week. Because I didn't want us to somehow switch on the academic side of our brain and separate it from the emotional responsive part. But this would have been a point. Jesus does not minimize her sin. He could have very easily said in verse 47, therefore I tell you her sins are forgiven. He intentionally pushes into what she knows to be a reality. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. He doesn't minimize her sin. Instead, he magnifies her faith. And he said to the woman in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. But there is this confusing thing, right? Verse 47, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table say, who is this that forgives sins? And, and, and he talks about her love and her forgiveness and how, how, how he is forgiving her. Here's the thing. He's not minimizing her sin. He's maximizing her faith. And he's basically saying her sins are many. There is no bottom to this pit, right? Your little bitty sin dug a massive hole through your soul and it will never reach a bottom. Because sin's desire is to master you. And for the rest of your life and for all of your life to this point, sin has just been sitting there thinking, how can I destroy? How can I kill? How can I destroy? And it deepens and it deepens. And there is no bottom to this pit. And Jesus knows this. She knows this. But Jesus also realizes that there is no ceiling to his forgiveness. There's no top to him. Her love didn't save her. We, we could read this and, and we could maybe think that she was forgiven because she loved. Therefore, I tell you in verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. As though it's saying because she loved, her sins are forgiven. And we just walk around saying, well, I'm just going to love people then. I'm going I'm I'm to have this revolution of my life where I'm just going to love people. Well, here's the thing. It's not her love that saved her. Her love was a byproduct of her faith. You can't love people. I can't love people. I am selfish. Really, really selfish. And so are you. Right? I mean, like, if that's your takeaway this morning, then praise God. But come on, we all know we're incredibly selfish. That's not news. Her love didn't save her. Her faith in Jesus did. Her love was evidence of the forgiveness. A love which in three different ways Jesus points out to Simon, he didn't have. Simon, you don't have evidence of forgiveness. In my story, two were forgiven, but you don't have evidence of 
forgiveness. Whatever we love is obvious to people. You can't hide it, maybe for a minute, but if people know you, if they really know you, you can't hide what you love, okay? I, so so um, Josh the intern has now, I don't know where, there he is, Josh the intern, has now been upgraded to Josh the pastoral assistant. He leveled up, new level, all right. And because of that, we get the privilege together to break open God's word, study it, work through commentaries, do word analysis, look for parallelism and all of this kind of fun stuff, right? So that's what we're doing early this week. And we're sitting side by side at my desk and we're just grinding and we're grinding and we're grinding. And I turn to my computer, put my back to him for a moment and and I'm starting to do some word study in Logos. And then all of a sudden I hear this sound. His, his phone is playing music, okay? And I'm like, okay, he's a music guy. That's normal, okay? It's not distracting me, no big deal. He whistles all the time, like it's a proof of his sanctification. So everywhere he goes. So sound coming from Josh is nothing new, all right? So I'm sitting there working, and then I turn around, and it's like, when I used to get into music back in the day, you know, like, you, you kind of, you'll move a little bit. Or if you're really into it, you'd like air guitar. He's like air tromboning, right? <laughs> like, we're working through text, and he's over there with his hand, like, doing this. And I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? And he doesn't even, like, give me the, the wherewithal of an introduction. He's like, do you hear this song? And I'm like, yeah, it's a song. I'm not a music guy. It sounds like music. He's like, yeah, but do you hear it? Do you feel it? I'm like, it feels like you're listening to music and I'm doing a word study. He's like, no, no, no. Do you feel like the passion in it? This was written by, it was some name that was like Russian, right? <laughs> and, and he's like, he had to write for Stalin and he didn't like Stalin, but he was so gifted that Stalin made him write for him. So you can hear in the deep tones of the trombone how much of his passion and frustration and hatred he poured into this song. Do you hear it? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, not at all. You could have said that entire thing to me in Hebrew and I would have benefited the exact same. I have no benefit from what you just said. He loves it. He loves it. He appreciates it. It comes out of him. What we love comes out. And this woman loved Jesus. So it came out. What do people see coming out of us? What do they see coming out of you? What do you love Who is Jesus to this woman? Well, Jesus was her only option. And she knew that she was not worthy of him. It it reminds me of the story of the woman in the Gospels who had that issue of blood for years and years and years. You remember how she treats Jesus? He's in a crowd and she like sneaks up and touches him so that she'll be healed because he's a physician, right? And he's okay getting his hands dirty. And so she walks up and she touches him and Jesus like stops and his disciples are around him. He's like, whoa, somebody touched me. And they're like, dude, we are in a crowd, right? Like Simon, like I thought you were a prophet, right? And Jesus is like, yes, but power has left me. And then he turns around and this woman who was not worthy of Jesus, who didn't feel like a relationship with Jesus was anywhere near her grasp, still said, I've got to just touch him. He's my only option. This is the same heart as our woman. And this is what really broke me about this text. Uh, We had a Shane and Shane concert this weekend and I was sitting back there in the baby section or whatever. And so I was sitting back there and they're singing a song. I don't remember the song. It was good. But because this text was laying on my heart, we were singing something about Jesus being exalted. And it hit me that, and if you can't appreciate this, that's okay with me. It, it hit me that this woman saw my Savior's perfect feet. I'll never see that. You will never see that. When Jesus died and bled for our sins on the cross, inviting all who would repent of their sins and trust in him to to be forgiven of their sins and enter into his family, he died. 
And then he was buried for three days. And on the third day, he rose. And these women met him. And they like freaked out. And they ran back to tell the guys. And the guys were like, no, man, that didn't happen. So then Jesus like appears in the room when the door was locked. And Thomas looks and he like freaks out. And then Jesus comes to him and he holds out his hand. And he says, do you see the holes in my hand? And he makes them touch them. That Thomas would know that it was really Jesus, that it was really him. And I was thinking about that, that for whatever reason, God has seen fit that in Jesus' resurrected body, the signs of his payment, the signs of our forgiveness would be displayed for all eternity in his perfect body. His feet are going to have holes in them, but she was an inch from him. She had tears covering them. She touched them with her hands and rubbed them with her feet and put ointment on them. The only one who could have known Jesus' feet better could have been Mary, his mother. But if, you're a, if you have kids, you know this. They have such cute little feet, right? But they grow and they get bigger. And you don't remember things like that as easily. But this woman's only experience with Christ was touching his perfect feet. And for all eternity, I will never see that. And the woman who would have quickly said, I don't deserve to see the perfect feet of my Savior was the one that he let see him. That's crazy. That's what broke me. In 1 Timothy 1.15, we read this. And I think this would have been the heart of this woman who, again, I can't even call her by name. 1 Timothy 1.15. It says this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is one of the most popular verses that Paul wrote. And Paul was a Pharisee, just like Simon. This is the heart of the woman that we see. And yet right here we see a Pharisee, a post-Pharisee, this guy who would have lived just like Simon, say exactly what this woman said, I am the foremost of sinners. And this is the last thing for us. Jesus, the... One, Simon's greatest sin was treating Jesus as common. Two, Jesus doesn't minimize her sin. He magnifies her faith. And three, Jesus, I I couldn't come up with a clean, short way to put this. Jesus makes sure that she knows that he knows her. Jesus makes absolutely abundantly sure that this woman knows that he knows knows who she is. She is center stage in this text and not given a name. Her sin, even Jesus talks more about her in this text than, than himself. Her sin is in tight focus and we don't even get to know what it is. It's the point. It doesn't matter what her sin was. It doesn't matter what your sin is. Until the end of this story, she is spoken about. And that was her whole life, right? Like since that sin, people just talked about her. They looked at her out of the side of their heads. They would speak. She would know people were talking about her. Occasionally they would point. And her whole life since that moment was consumed with people just talking about her. And then all of a sudden Jesus talks about her. But he does it in a different way. And her heart begins to race. And her breath begins to shorten. Because Jesus is speaking with affection. And he's Speaking with affirmation, dare I even say he was being appreciative of her faith. And all of a sudden she begins to get more excited. And then in verse 48, Jesus actually speaks directly to her. And what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. Verse 50. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He looks at this woman and he says to a woman who has been talked about. He talks about finally with affirmation, with affection. And then he looks her in the eye and he speaks to her. 
Something a man may not, may not have done in ages. A relationship she never hoped to be able to have. Certainly with this kind of a guy. And he says, your sin is gone. Your faith is real. Now go in peace. Sin wants to master your life. My life. And as it nibbles and eats away at our soul, it leaves this bitterness, this blight of turmoil, of stress, confusion, irritability, frustration, fear, whatever else it is, that's what it leaves. Paul, would you go ahead and come on up? Your greatest hope against the turmoil that stirs within you, that stirs, stirs within all of us as a result of our sin, your greatest hope is to find the peace that this woman found. And you cannot do it with a clean, sterilized, marked, thought-out, appropriate response. Cry out to God like she did. Cry out to God. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. If you don't ever lift your voice, lift your voice this morning. Come down to the altar. Receive prayer from a pastor. Lean to the person next to you and say, I need prayer. But don't come to Jesus all cleaned up. There's nothing there for you. Don't come to a physician to tell him how healthy you are. Come to the physician to say, I'm riddled with sin and I treat it like it's small and I need to be healed because if we won't sterilize our response to him, he will not sterilize the peace that he gives. And if we won't clean up our response to him, then, then what he calls us to next can actually be freedom. I was thinking about this hymn last night. It says, Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with His love He befriends you. This woman found a friend in Christ. And it wasn't because she loved or was good or clean. It was the opposite of those things. It's simply because she cried out to Him. And He said, Get up and go in peace. What would God do with your life if you held nothing back? What would he do with you if your sin was poured out like ointment in an alabaster jar that you never wanted to try to pull back in? As we worship, respond, cry out, receive prayer, this is not a sterile place. It's God's place. Let him do work. Amen. Well, let's stand together and sing together.
characters in that story that we read today. So as we dove into God's Word, where did you find yourself? Where did you put yourself? You only had two options, I'll tell you that, okay? The third was not an option for you or for me. But I spent much of the time, which is what I do, I spend much of my time putting myself in the position of the Pharisee because I'm so good at that. Boy, I'm so buttoned up on the outside keep it high and tight because I don't have many options. But when I dig to the deepest part of my soul, I am the woman. <laughs> You're the woman when we look at the deepest parts of our soul. But the reality is we are both of those two people. But here's, there's a word in that text today that just gets me. Jesus said to them, he said, you got to go now. Now he said, go in peace, but you got to go. You can't stick around here. So I always want to know what's the next chapter in that. What happened? Did the woman just leave and she was just perfect? And the Pharisee had his eyes open and went, wow, boy, am I. Boy, I'm too buttoned up. I got to realize. You know what they did? They kept on sinning. <laughs> they kept on being very pharisaical. They kept on just making mistakes when they knew the good that they ought to do, but they couldn't do it. But Jesus is saying, you got to go. But the gospel that saved you, the gospel that gives you you new, you new life, you're never detached from it. So listen, woman. Listen, Pharisee. You keep coming to the altar for the remainder of your days so that you can see and savor me more. And that's what we're called to do. Listen to these words from Micah chapter 7. It's our benediction. <laughs> Who is a God like you? Who is this? Who is this? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Praise God. Hallelujah and amen. Let's go. Y'all have a great week. Pour out our praise, we pour out our praise, it's your praise.
shout your praise.